This morning we're continuing in Philippians 3. We've been working our way through this amazing chapter here. It is a glorious chapter all about the goal of life, the Christian life, and what a true Christian is and how a true Christian is to live. This morning I'm going to begin by reading our passage for us. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Follow along as I read our passage, beginning in verse 17. The Apostle Paul says this, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. John G. Patton, a 19th century missionary to the South Seas, met opposition to leaving his homeland in Scotland and going to preach to the cannibalistic people of the new Hebrides Islands. A well-meaning church member came to him and moaned and said, The cannibals, the cannibals, you will be eaten by the cannibals. Without hesitation, Patton replied, and he said this, I confess to you that if I can live and die serving my Lord Jesus Christ. It makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in that great day of resurrection, my body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. John Patton was a man who lived with an eternal perspective. He was a man who lived as an example for others to follow after. In fact, many missionaries looked to this man as an example, as a model for them. John G. Patton was a man who lived his life as a citizen of heaven. And that's what Paul wants for the believers in the church at Philippi. And for us as well, he wants this for all believers. For us to live our lives as citizens of heaven with an eternal perspective. As we're living our lives here on this earth. In fact, if you remember from last week, Paul had in mind the analogy of running a race. And he talked to the Philippian believers about pressing on, about running the race of the Christian life. 
We see this in verse 14, this famous verse that a lot of us would know. Notice what he says there in chapter 3 and verse 14. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. As we look at this verse, we, we might ask the question, well, what is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? What is Paul talking about here as he's, as he's pressing on toward that goal, toward that prize? What is that upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Is this the initial call of salvation? Is this a call to sanctification? Or is this the call of God when He calls us home to be with Him in heaven? Well, I believe it's the last one. That it's the last one. This is the call when God calls every believer to come and be at home with Him in heaven. When we're in His presence. Because we're in Christ Jesus. And because we are in Christ Jesus, we will finally be home with God and we will then receive the prize that we have been striving to obtain. What is that? What is that goal? What is that striving after? That prize that we've been striving for? It's perfect Christ-likeness. Perfect Christ-likeness. For every believer, this is an unattainable goal while we are here on earth. None of us will be perfect like Christ is perfect. And yet, at the same time, that is the goal that we're after. That's what we're to be striving for. That was Paul's goal. And it's our goal as well. But when God calls us home... When God calls us to to be with Him in heaven, that goal then will finally be realized and we will be like Christ. But we aren't there yet. We aren't there yet. We haven't reached our final goal. We haven't received the prize of being perfect like Christ. We haven't reached our final destination of heaven But that doesn't mean that we're not citizens of heaven. In fact, notice what Paul says there in verse 20. Notice what he says there. He says, for our citizenship is where? In heaven. We as believers are citizens of heaven. Even though we haven't arrived yet, even though we are still living on this earth, those who are in Christ Jesus are citizens of heaven. In fact, Peter, in 1 Peter 2.11, he describes us as aliens and strangers. You and I, as believers in this world, are aliens and strangers. Listen to what he says in 1 Peter 2.11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Peter calls us spiritual aliens strangers, because he knows that this world is not our home. We're just strangers who are passing through. That's all we are. Strangers who are passing through. Our home is not this world system. 
But our home is where? It's heaven. Heaven is our home. But as we sit here this morning, we know, we realize we're not home yet. We're not there. And so until that time comes, there are some ways in which you and I are to live during our sojourn here on earth. And that's what we're going to see in our text here this morning. Paul is going to tell us how we are to live our lives here on this earth as citizens of heaven. As we continue to strive toward the goal of Christ's likeness. And in this passage here, we're going to see three essentials for living as citizens of heaven during our stay on earth. Three essentials for living as citizens of heaven during our stay on earth. Three things that are necessary in our life as we live as citizens of heaven here on earth. Let me give you the first essential. Essential number one is that we must follow godly examples. We must follow godly examples. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. Notice what he says there. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, notice how Paul introduces this section of this letter here. What does he call them? He calls them brethren. Brethren. This is the third time that Paul has used this word in chapter 3. Brethren. Why does he call them this? Well, this is a term that shows humility and unity as their brothers and sisters in Christ. It shows concern for them as he desires for the church to do these things that he's about to tell them to do. He loves them and He cares for them. He's a shepherd of them. He's a a pastor over them. And with that pastoral heart that He has for the Philippian believers, He calls them brethren. He's concerned for them. And He gives them two commands. What does He tell them to do? Two commands. Command number one, He says, join in following my example. Or another way we could say this is, be imitators of me. Then command number two, he says, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Or another way we could say this is, watch carefully those who are living this way. Watch carefully those who are living like I am living. And in these two commands, what Paul is saying here is, imitate me and all those who walk like me. That's what you're to do as citizens of heaven. As you're living out your life here on this earth, imitate me and imitate all those who walk like me. Now we might hear this and we might think, how arrogant of Paul to say this. Who does Paul think he is? To say, imitate me? But this is where our bibliology comes in. This is where our bibliology comes in. Remember, this is the inspired Word of God, right? Inspired, breathed out by God. And therefore, everything that Paul writes down here is coming from who? From God. 
Therefore, what Paul is writing here is not coming from Paul's own mind. As if Paul is the authority here. No, this is God writing this through him. And so what Paul is saying here in saying imitate me is not some arrogance, but he's writing down exactly what God wants him to write down. And exactly what God wants for the church to do. Imitate Paul. Imitate him. We know that God's word is breathed out by him and that it's profitable for us. And so we would do well to pay attention to it. To pay attention to everything that Paul is saying here. You see, Paul is not being arrogant. In fact, he just told us back in verse 12 that he's not perfect and he's not arrived. Right? Verse 12, he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I am not perfect like Christ, but I'm striving toward that goal. And so with that in mind, in the mind of the Philippian believers, they wouldn't see this as Paul being arrogant, but simply setting an example for them to follow. Why? Well, Paul knows that all of us need someone to imitate. We all need an example. In fact, if you think about your life, others are watching you, and they're going to follow you in whatever manner you're walking. People are watching. Think about parents who set an example for their children. Their children are watching. Watching everything that we do. We don't have to tell our children what to do. Watch me. Do what I do. Whether we like it or not, our children are watching us and they will do everything that we do. Because we're examples for them. I can remember last summer playing basketball with the boys and I was wearing a hat and I took my hat and I turned it around backwards because we're playing basketball. And one of the boys was wearing a hat and he took his hat and he turned it around backwards because we're playing basketball. And then another one, I won't mention his name, but he's the youngest one, ran in the house to go get his hat so that he could put his hat on backwards. I didn't have to tell him to do this. They just do it. They're watching. We're all examples. All of us, at some point in our lives, have been an example to someone else. Parents are examples. Grandparents are examples to their children and to their grandchildren. Older siblings are examples to younger siblings. Sometimes for good and for bad. But they're examples. A boss with employees, an example. Even coworker to coworker, examples. And Paul knows that he is an example to the Philippian believers. 
They know how he lives his life. And he wants them to follow after him. And so he commands them to follow his example. Now, notice that phrase there in verse 17. He says, join in following my example. The Greek word that's used there is sum memetes. Sum meaning with, and memetes meaning example, from which we get our word mimic. You can hear it there in that Greek word. Memetes, mimic. And what Paul is saying here is literally, mimic me or follow me. Follow my example. Do what I do. Live your life the way that I live my life. Now again, this is not Paul being prideful and arrogant, but this is him recognizing that the Philippian believers need an example to follow after. What Paul is saying here is, just as I follow after Christ, I want you to follow after me. In fact, Paul told the Corinthian church twice, two times. In 1 Corinthians 4.16, he says, Therefore I exhort you, be imitators of me. And then later on in 1 Corinthians 11.1, he said, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Paul looked to Christ. Because he knows that Christ is the ultimate example. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.21, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps. Christ left an example for us in how we are to live our lives, and specifically in regards to suffering. Christ is the perfect example. And that's who Paul modeled his life after. He modeled his life after Christ. One commentator says, Paul was a a dynamic example in seeking to follow Christ. He was forever straining ahead, forever pressing on to be like Christ. And so as he models his life after Christ, he wanted them to model their life after him. And listen, Paul knew that the church needs godly examples. He knows that. The church needs godly examples. But we might ask, well, who are these godly examples? Who are to be the godly examples in the church that Paul knows about? I mean, Paul's not around anymore. None of us can watch his life. It didn't get recorded on video. So who does the church then have today to model their lives after? Listen to what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one look down on you or on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. God established Timothy to be the pastor at the church of Ephesus And then through the pen of Paul, Timothy was commanded by God to be an example to the believers under his care. It's the job of the pastor to be an example, to be a model to the sheep. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. 
He's commanding the believers to imitate the faith of their leaders, those who speak the word of God to them. The author of Hebrews knew that it was the job of the elders in the church to be a model and an example to those who are under their care. It's the job and the responsibility, it's the duty of the elders in the church to be godly examples to those who are in the church. In fact, Peter reiterates this to the elders in 1 Peter 5.3. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but, he says this, proving to be examples to the flock. It's the job of the elders. It's the duty, the responsibility of the elders of the church to shepherd the church and to be an example to the flock. They're to be godly examples to those believers who are in the church. And especially at this time that Paul is writing because there are false teachers who were coming in and trying to deceive the believers and lead them astray. So the people needed a tangible example to follow after so that they wouldn't be led astray. You see, here's the amazing thing. With Paul commanding the church to imitate him, let me ask you, could the church see Christ visibly? No. He had ascended. He was gone. They didn't have Christ as a visible model for them, as a tangible model for them. But could this, the church see Paul and Timothy and the other elders who were called to be examples? They could. There's tangible examples, models for them right in front of their eyes. And that's the wonderful thing about God penning this through the Apostle Paul. God gives him to the church to be an example and then through Paul's pen tells the church to follow Paul's example. One commentator says, Paul never reached the perfect pattern of Christ. He could not. Not as long as he was a man. But he pressed and pressed to be all he could for Christ. It is this that Paul sets before us as a pattern. To press and to press to be all that we can be for Christ. And it's the, the duty and the responsibility of the pastors, the elders of our churches to be that model who are pressing on to be more and more like Christ. You see, can, can you and I be perfect as Christ is perfect? No. We can't. We understand that. Paul understood that. He told us that in verse 12. Not perfect. But God gives us men like Paul who wasn't perfect. Man like Paul. Paul who even said he's the chief of sinners. Paul, who we know battled the flesh. We read about that in Romans 7. And we praise God for men like him because now I have someone that I can relate to and follow after as he follows after Christ. 
He's a fallen man just like I'm fallen. And therefore, he becomes that model and that example of what it means to be someone who is running after Christ, pressing on for the goal and the prize. Paul wasn't perfect, and I won't be perfect, but I want to strive after spiritual perfection just like Paul wanted to strive after spiritual perfection. And so he becomes the godly example. And Paul knew that the church needed godly men, godly elders to lead and be examples to the rest of the people. And so he says, watch my life. Follow after my example. But at the same time, notice the second half of verse 17, he says, and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. You see, this is where we see the humility of Paul on display. Paul is not saying that he is the only godly example in the church. He's not saying that. But he recognizes that there are other godly examples in the church as well. And so he commands the church not only to follow him, but also those who are living godly lives in the church as well. Brothers and sisters in Christ, those around us who are living godly lives. We need to model our lives after them. Who would this be? This here would include Timothy and Epaphroditus, whom we saw back in chapter 2. In fact, notice what he says back in chapter 2 and verse 29 about Epaphroditus. He tells the Philippian church this. He says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard. Look at that man. Hold him in high regard. You see the way he faithfully serves Christ and his church? Watch that man. Model your life after that man. Serve Christ and his church like that man. He's become a model for us. This would be Timothy and Epaphroditus. This would include all those who were not even named, but who are in the church living their lives as godly examples to others. Now notice that word observe there in verse 17. Notice that word observe. It's the Greek word skopeo. And it means to pay careful attention to, to look out for, or to fix your gaze on. It's the picture of taking a microscope or a telescope and marking out or observing something. It's focusing in on it. In fact, it's actually the verb form of the noun goal back up in verse 14. It's the same word that's used. It's just the verb form of goal. Mark it out. There's the goal. That's the target. That's what you're after. That's what you're looking for. And what Paul is saying here is watch these people. Mark them out. Who are the godly ones in the church? Mark them out and model your life after them. Observe them. Watch their lives. And specifically, notice what Paul says to observe or to watch. We're to watch their what? Their walk. We're to watch their walk. That is their daily conduct. 
observe their daily conduct and follow after their pattern of life as they follow the same pattern of life as us, as Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus and all other believers who are striving after Christ-likeness. Mark them out. Watch their conduct. Notice he says, watch the pattern of their lives. That word pattern there means an imprint or a mold or a model. It's the picture of of wax or clay that was stamped or imprinted. You might see that on the bottom of a clay pot. It's imprinted or it's stamped to show where it was made or who it was made by. What Paul is saying here is that there are those whose life has been stamped or molded and looks like mine and Timothy's and Epaphroditus's. And for those who look like that and are striving after Christ, observe their life and model your life after theirs. Now, is it only the elders in the church who are to be godly examples? No, it's not. It's not just for the elders. As we just saw, elders are supposed to be the examples. They must be the examples in the church. But this is for everyone. This is for everyone. Every believer should be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. We should be able to look at people around us and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Let me ask you, can you say that? Can you tell others, follow me as I follow Christ? Are you living in such a way that you're an example for others to pattern their life after? We need godly examples in the church. We need them. And we need to make sure that we're following other godly examples in our lives as well. It's like a train. Follow a godly example who's following after Christ. And then others will follow after you who is following a godly example who is following after Christ. And we're all moving in the same direction. Which way are we going? Toward Christ. Toward Christ-likeness. Growing in our Christ-likeness, to be more and more like Him. And all of us, as citizens of heaven, will then be following after and striving to be more and more like Christ. And so, as we live our lives as sojourners here on earth, as we live as citizens of heaven, the first essential to living like a citizen of heaven, is to follow godly examples. To follow godly examples. Second, a second essential to living like a citizen of heaven is to flee worldly enemies. To flee worldly enemies. Look at verse 18. What Paul says there, he says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. You see, there are godly examples, 
And then there are people who live their lives as enemies of the cross. And just like we are to mark out those who are living godly lives and model our lives after them, we're also to mark out those who are enemies. Did you know that? In fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans 16, 17. He says this, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. Keep your eye on them and turn away from them. Mark them out and then run away from them. We're to watch out for and turn away from false teachers who go against the teaching of sound doctrine. Who are enemies of the cross. Isn't that what Paul told the Ephesian elders in Acts 20? In fact, hold your finger here in Philippians 3 and, and turn over with me to Acts chapter 20. In Acts 20, this is Paul who has gathered the Ephesian elders to himself. This is his farewell address to them. And notice what Paul says in verse 29. In fact, even up in verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. Be on guard. Watch. Watch over the church, elders. This is your job. This is your duty. And then verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This is very serious stuff. Very serious stuff. False teachers will arise from where? From within the church. From within. They claim to be Christians at one time, but they turn out to be false. And they seek to draw away believers from the church to follow after them. They're not just outside the walls of the church. They're within the walls of the church. And they're seeking to draw away the disciples after them. Listen, beloved. Truth and error don't mix. It's like oil and water. They don't mix. And when false teachers come in with error, the job and the duty of the elders of the church is to stand up and fight. Why? What does Paul say? Be on guard. Be on guard. It's the responsibility of the elders of the church to guard and protect the sheep. It's the duty and the responsibility of the elders of this church to guard and protect you. Because we love you. 
because we care for you. Because we want to see you grow in Christ's likeness and not be led astray following after false teachers. We don't want that for you. Truth and error don't mix. And so, if error comes in, it's time to fight. And we're going to stand on the truth. We have to stand on the truth. And anyone who's espousing error is to be avoided so that no one will follow after their example. They're to be marked out and they're to be avoided. They're a bad example. A bad example for the sheep, for the flock. And in Paul's day, notice what he says. There were many of these false teachers. Turn back to Philippians 3. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says, for many walk. Many, not a few. Many walk as false teachers. There are many false teachers whose daily conduct is full of evil and unrighteousness. Not much has changed, has it? Not much has changed. We can say the same thing today. We can say with Paul, for many walk. There are many false teachers that are out there. Now, why does Paul bring up these false teachers here? Well, what Paul is doing here is he's emphasizing why it's so important to follow after godly examples. He's saying, this is why I'm telling you it is so important to follow after me and follow after other godly examples in your life. You must do this because there are many who are out there who are trying to lead you astray. But as we said, they're both outside the walls and even inside the walls of the church. And so what Paul is saying here to the Philippian believers is stay away from them. Mark them out and turn away. They're bad examples. And Paul has to warn the church about them. But if you notice, this isn't the first time that he's warned them about false teachers. He says again in verse 18, he says, of whom I often told you. Paul's most likely referring here to the time when he was with them in Philippi. When he had spent time with them. He had been with them. The last time that I saw you, that I was with you, you remember what I told you. I told you. Watch out for them. Watch out for those false teachers. And so this here wouldn't be a shock to the Philippian believers to read this. Oh yeah, Paul told us about them. The last time he was here with us. They've been warned of the dangers of false teachers. But why does Paul have to warn them again? Why does he have to do that? Because listen church, we all need reminders. We all need reminders. And this is something 
This warning is all throughout the New Testament. Time and time again, God is warning his church about false teachers. In fact, Jesus in Matthew 7 talks about wolves in sheep's clothing. Luke tells us of Paul's warning in Acts 20 that we just saw. Paul warns Timothy in 1 and 2 Timothy. Peter warns in 2 Peter. John warns in 1, 2, and 3 John and the book of Revelation. And Jude even warns us of false teachers. It's all throughout the New Testament. God, time and time again, is warning His church, church, watch out for false teachers and don't follow after them. Stay grounded in the truth. Seek out godly examples. Follow after them. Seek out those people who are striving after Christ to be more and more like Christ and follow after them. Now, who are these false teachers that Paul is talking about here in Philippians? Well, Paul identifies them to us as enemies of the cross. He says they're enemies of the cross, but notice he doesn't specifically identify them. He doesn't call them out by titles or by name. He just says that they are enemies of the cross. And so who are these false teachers? Well, some some commentators believe that they are the the Judaizers of verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. As we said, those are the Judaizers who were there. Who were saying that salvation is by faith plus works. Salvation by faith plus the law of Moses and specifically circumcision. Is it them? Possibly. Some believe that maybe it was Gentile Gnostics. The Gnostics who believed that only the spiritual was important and that the physical was actually evil. And so they would continue to live in sin in their life in the physical body because they said, well, it doesn't matter. It's evil anyways. Gnostics. Judaizers. We don't know for sure who it was. But notice Paul identified them not as just indifferent to the cross of Christ, not just as uninterested in the cross of Christ, but notice what he says. These false teachers are what? Enemies of the cross of Christ. They're enemies. They're enemies of the message of salvation, the message of substitutionary atonement, the message of the gospel, the cross of Christ. They're enemies. And they will seek to draw people away from Christ instead of lead people to Christ. Now, What's interesting here is that Paul is writing to the Philippian believers to tell them not to follow the example of these enemies. But if we think about this, if we think about this letter here that Paul is writing to this church, he's writing to the Philippian believers. So why would Paul have to warn them about these false teachers? Well, It goes to show the influence that these enemies have even within the church. 
Enemies of the cross of Christ have influence even within the walls of the church. We know spiritually that they're outside of the church. They're unbelievers. They're not citizens of heaven. They're not children of God, but they're children of who? Of Satan. They're children of the devil. These false teachers. But they are still able to have influence within the church. So Paul has to continuously warn the church about them. He warns them because he doesn't want anyone in the church to follow their example and be led astray. And as Paul writes about these enemies, notice what he does as he writes about them. In the middle of verse 18, he says, And now tell you even weeping. Paul is weeping as he's writing this letter, thinking about these false teachers, these enemies of the cross. In fact, this is in the present tense. This word weeping in the Greek is in the present tense, meaning he is weeping as he's writing this. It's as if his tears are falling to the page as he's writing this to the Philippian believers. Why is Paul weeping? Well, I think there are a few reasons why he is. Number one, I think he's weeping because he knows who some of these people are who are enemies. And he knows their ultimate destination. Remember, Paul had a heart for the lost. Paul desires for the lost to be saved. In fact, in thinking about the Israelites who don't believe in Christ in Romans 9-2, he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He says, I wish that I could be accursed so that they could know Christ. He's got a heart for the lost even for the enemies of the cross. He knows their ultimate destination and it causes him to weep. Number two, I believe he's weeping because he knows the devastating effect false teachers can have on a church. He knows what these enemies of the cross are doing and can do to the local church. They're a threat to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And that thought brought him to tears. You see, Paul was a passionate man. But he's also pastoral and tender-hearted, And he was grieved by the thought of anyone coming to harm Christ's church. Well, who are these false teachers? Again, we don't know for sure. We know that they're identified as enemies of the cross of Christ. But then in verse 19, Paul gives us a description of them as he tells us four facts about these false teachers. Notice fact number one. Look at verse 19. Paul says, whose end is destruction. Whose end is destruction. The final destination of these false teachers won't be heaven. They're not citizens of heaven. 
but they will be damned forever in hell. Their end is destruction. In fact, in fact Paul says, of all who deny Jesus, in, in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. These false teachers and all who deny Christ and the salvation that He came to offer will pay the penalty of destruction forever. Listen, some of you might be here this morning and you're not a citizen of heaven because you've not repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin that you couldn't pay. and None of us could pay. And He went to the cross after living a perfect life. He went to a cross and He died on that cross. He went willingly to that cross to make the sacrifice, the payment for all who would believe in Him. And if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, I urge you to do that today. I'm here to warn you, to tell you, your end is eternal destruction. And it breaks my heart to think that that would be some of you. But I'm here to give you hope. I'm here to give you the message of eternal life. It's found in Christ. Come to Him. And when you come to Him, you will be a citizen of heaven, even while you're still here on earth. And you'll have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Come to Him today. You see, there are many false teachers who are out there who are leading many people astray and whose end is destruction. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 7, the road that leads to destruction is what? Broad. And who finds it? Many. But the road that leads to life is what? Narrow. And how many find it? Few. There are many false teachers who are out there. And since their end is destruction, Paul's saying, don't follow after them. Don't follow them. Notice there's a second fact. Fact number two, Paul continues in verse 19 and he says, whose God is their appetite. They might be enemies of the God who came to save sinners and they might not worship Him, but they do have a God that they do worship. Who is their God? What is their God? Their appetite, themselves, their fleshly desires. Now what does Paul mean by this, by appetite? Well, although the Greek word for appetite can mean stomach or even womb, 
Paul uses it here metaphorically to refer to any unrestrained fleshly desires. Any unrestrained fleshly desires. That's their God. Their God is themselves and their own desires and their own passions. And they follow after that and they worship self and they worship their own desires and their own pleasure. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, listen to this, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. What is he saying? Don't follow after your fleshly desires. Don't follow after your fleshly appetites. That's what the false teachers do. They love physical pleasures. They love material gratification. Their God is those things, and therefore that is what they worship. And because they worship those things, they'll lead you astray so that you go and worship them as well. Don't follow after them. Notice there's a third fact. Fact number three, Paul says in verse 19, and whose glory is in their shame. What does he mean by this? He means that these false teachers, they boast in their wickedness and their sin. They boast about it. Instead of being ashamed of it, they boast in it. As one commentator says, this is the most extreme form of wickedness when the sinner's most wretched conduct before God is his highest point of self-exaltation. They are exalting in self as they continue to live in their sin. Do you see that on TV today? Boasting about their own sin. In fact, we even have a month now called Pride Month. Boasting about sin. Prideful about their own sin. Their glory is in their shame. These sinners pride themselves in the sin that they commit. That's who these false teachers are. And then in fact number four, Paul says at the end of verse 19, who set their minds on earthly things. Now if you remember, one of the things that Paul highlights in this letter to the Philippians is the mind. It's one of the key themes here in Philippians is the mind. He cares about the mind. God cares about the mind. In fact, in all of Paul's letters, he speaks of the mind a total of 23 times. But in the, in the book of Philippians here, it's found 10 times. More than any other single letter that Paul wrote. He talks about the mind. Why is Paul so focused on the mind? Because he wants us to have the mind of Christ and to be able to think biblically. How does he describe these enemies of the cross? Their minds are set on what? Earthly things. They don't think about spiritual things or heavenly things because they're not citizens of heaven. 
They love the world and the things of the world. In fact, this is how James describes unbelievers in James 4.4. 4. He says, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. An enemy of God. These enemies of the cross are those whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. So what do we do? Well, as those who are not citizens of this world, but citizens of heaven, how do we live our lives? We strive after Christ. We strive to be Christ-like as we follow godly examples and we flee worldly enemies. And there's one more essential to living as a citizen of heaven, but we'll save that for next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word and the warnings that you give to us Lord, these warnings are so, so good for us. Time and time again, you warn us in your word of those who are enemies of the cross, of those who are false teachers. And Lord, we thank you for the warnings that you give to us. We know that you warn us because you love us. You care for us. You desire what is best for us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be godly examples, to find godly examples, to model, model our lives after godly examples, after men and women who are striving after Christ-likeness. Because we know that that is the goal as we live here on this earth as citizens of heaven. Father, I pray that you would help us to be fixed upon that goal to pursue Christ more and more in our lives. And Father, if there is anyone here this morning who is not a citizen of heaven, oh Lord, I pray that you would draw them to you. I pray that you would change their heart, that you would open their eyes, help them to realize and understand that their sin has driven them away from you, has separated them from you, from eternal life. I pray that they would awaken their minds to understand and to know how sinful that they are and that they would repent of their sin and run to Christ who made the payment for our sin. Lord, save them. Give them. Grant them the gift of repentance and faith that they might have the free gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, help us to leave from this place today pursuing Christ, pressing on toward the goal that we might do it until we hear that call from you calling us to come home to be with you forever. 
May we do it for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.